Welcome to the Modern Medicine Movement Podcast with Dr. Thomas Hemingway. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said to yourself, I thought I'd be healthier, in better shape, feel better both physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and be further along in my life? If so, come on this journey with my dad as he explores all things health and wellness from a holistic, medical perspective, even as a classically trained physician. He'll share integrative strategies to optimize health and inspire you to join the modern medicine movement. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Modern Medicine Movement Podcast. Dr. Thomas Hemingway here sending you a big aloha. It's a beautiful day, guys, and I am so grateful to be with you sharing again another episode of some new cutting-age stuff that's just really going to, I think it's going to help you live better, be healthier, be happier, be more energized, and just get to that optimal health that you've always desired. It's, uh, it's exciting. This is, this is such a fun process to be able to research these topics and then share them with you guys, and I'm just getting lots of cool feedback from you. So I really appreciate that. That just tickles my heart, and it just pumps me up. It really just excites me. So if you've written a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, I really, really, really appreciate it. If you haven't, super easy to do, especially on Apple. If you just scroll down to the bottom of the show where it's got those five stars, click on the one farthest to the right, and right below that, there's a little kind of square box there with a, I guess it's a pencil coming out the top and it says write a review and you just click on that. So please, 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 please subscribe and write me a review because that's just what helps get the word out and we can help many more people that way. So thank you ahead of time. I appreciate you. And I'd love to share with you a review I got recently that just kind of tickled my heart. It's from uh, B uh, made a health and it says, uh, I'm here for the modern medicine movement. And it says, quote, the modern medicine movement is spot on and shares the most impactful evidence for staying healthy in an easy to digest format. After working as a cardiovascular nurse practitioner for several years, I became disillusioned with the overwhelming number of prescriptions I was required to write to manage the effects of lifestyle disease. I knew there had to be a better way to prevent and relieve suffering than our current model. I'm making a career shift to be functional and lifestyle medicine focused and truly believe this is the healthcare of the future. And I'm glad to be a part of this movement. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your background as um, a nurse practitioner in cardiology, which I 100% agree with you that that it is probably, oh my gosh, it's, it's unfortunate because as many of us know, heart disease is the number one cause of death, you know, cardiovascular disease, the number one cause of death worldwide. And it is almost entirely preventable, preventable. That means we can C-A-N, do something about it. So I I share with you that. I appreciate that. I believe that. And there's so much we can do without prescription pharmaceuticals. There is a need for them um, occasionally for certain cases and certain things. But I, I really believe that Western medicine in general has just really, really overused 
prescription medication for a long time and hasn't gotten to the root of most of our health problems. In fact, out of the top 10 causes of death worldwide, the overwhelming majority of them are exactly as this person states in the review, lifestyle-related illnesses like the number one killer, cardiovascular disease. So that's why we do this. That's why we share these things because we can do something about this. We don't have to be at the mercy of these diseases. We can change this. We can change the future of our own lives and many, many others that we can touch. So thank you for that review. It just tickles my heart to be able to continue to share these things with you guys because I just believe that there is so much in us, within us, that we have the power to change and affect in our own lives, and we can share that with others, and we can be healthier. We can be happier. We can be more energetic, and just I just love sharing these tools with you guys because I think it really makes a big difference. I know it has in me, and I've seen it affect and help thousands of others. So thanks again for that review. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for writing reviews. Thank you for being a part of my free Facebook group. If you're not already, you can subscribe, um, request to join there. Just It's Modern Medicine Movement Health and Wellness Facebook group. It's free. I do lives in there. I do some extra... Uh, information I share with you. You're the first to know and my podcasts are released. You can ask me questions there. You can also email me modern medicine movement podcast at gmail.com. So thank you once again today. I am pumped because I'm going to talk about hormonal problems and we're going to talk about the most common hormonal problem in the world, hands down. In fact, 88% of us humans have this hormonal problem. 88%, almost 9 out of 10 of us. And this one hormonal problem affects so many other of the hormones. And so if you have a problem with this one system I'm going to talk about, like 9 out of 10 of us worldwide have it could be at the root of other hormonal problems. Any, any ideas out there what this hormonal problem might be? Well, this common hormonal problem or hormonal issue, imbalance, whatever you want to call it, is actually with respect to what I often refer to as one of the master hormones. And that master hormone is insulin insulin and insulin resistance or a hormonal problem with respect to insulin is truly an imbalance can be directly related to many other hormone disorders. In fact, have you ever known or heard of anybody with maybe some of the following hormonal conditions like hypothyroidism, polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, infertility, sexual dysfunction, low T or low testosterone, breast, uterine, cervical cancer, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, chronic fatigue syndrome, depression, anxiety, PMS. All of these things are related to insulin, believe it or not. Isn't that crazy? Insulin. It may be the common denominator 
with respect to lots of hormonal issues. So let's talk a little bit about how insulin acts as a master hormone, how it can interact with these other hormonal systems. And then, of course, what we can do to not only improve our hormone balance with respect to insulin, but also with respect to many of the other hormones we care about, right? Like our sex hormones, right? If we're a dude, we care about the testosterone and the, you know, ladies, estrogen, and also testosterone because they need to have some testosterone as well. And guys also have some estrogen too, but we just don't want too much, right, of the estrogen because then we get those man boobs, as they sometimes call them, and other issues that we're just not pumped about. So, so let's talk about this. So insulin is what I like to refer to as a master hormone. In other words, it affects through communication processes, signaling, if you will, many, many, many of the other hormones. And if our insulin is all out of whack, it can affect many of our other hormones, like, for example, glucagon, human growth hormone, or HGH. You guys have heard of that, growth hormone, human growth hormone. Adrenaline, cortisol. These are all affected by insulin. Estrogen, as just mentioned, as well as testosterone are affected by insulin, as well as thyroid hormone and many others. So it's pretty interesting these, you know, hormones, if you will, are chemical messengers, and they talk to one another. They have signaling that occurs between and amongst them, and we would love to have them in balance, if you will, and to be, you know, properly communicating and interacting in a well-described way that is harmonious and beautiful and healthful, but sometimes this doesn't quite happen that way. And it can lead to all these issues I mentioned, right? Hypothyroid, PCOS, infertility, sexual dysfunction, low T, all these things. So let's talk about how this all begins. And then we'll talk specifically about a couple of the hormonal interactions that I think you'll find interesting. And at the heart of it is this issue, this notion of insulin resistance, okay? problem with the hormonal signal insulin, this messenger insulin, which, you know, in simple, simple terms, it sounds like it's a quite, you know, simple message that insulin gives, right? Insulin is released primarily after we eat a carbohydrate, you know, meal in response to elevated levels of, you know, sugar or blood glucose. The insulin is released in response to that. You know, the glucose spikes first, then the insulin spikes, and then the insulin tells the cells, hey, you better absorb or take in the glucose. And once the storage, you know, form of glucose or the glycogen is met and full in the liver and in the muscles primarily is where the glucose is stored, which is actually with respect to our total body energy. It's a tiny, tiny amount. I've heard quotes of as low as, you know, 4 to 6% of our entire body fuel, if you will, is stored as glucose. The rest of it, it's that jiggly stuff. It's stored as fat. And insulin, what it does is it tells the cells to take up that glucose, right? Get it out of the bloodstream. We don't want to have a super high glucose level 
in the blood because that causes all those issues you guys have probably heard of. Like in uncontrolled diabetics, there's this condition called diabetic ketoacidosis, which is high blood sugar and also an acid, you know, a low pH in the blood because of the elevated glucose um, causing this. So we don't want that, right? We don't want to have really high blood sugar. That can be a big issue. And so insulin is released to try to tell the cells, hey, you know, we got all this insulin from this carbohydrate meal. We got to take it into the cells so we don't get this really high blood sugar problem. And then once the storage forms are met, which is pretty quickly since only about 4 to 6% of all our body energy stores are in the form of glycogen, which is that stored glucose or the stored sugar. And then the rest of it is in fat. So basically, most of the time, insulin tells the body, hey, take up this glucose, get it out of the blood, and then store it, store that glucose. And it is stored 95% of the time as fat. That's right. All that sugar, all those carbs we eat, guess where they go? They go right to our fat, 95 or so percent of the time. And that's because of the signal from insulin. Insulin is what they call anabolic. Anabolic, which is sort of tissue building. It's building up tissue. And if we want to lose weight or lose fat, we don't want to have a really hefty anabolic process of building up these fat cells going on, right? We want to lose some of that fat. So it's exactly the opposite effect, right? If we want to burn that fat, we have to have low insulin because if insulin is elevated, it signals the body to grow the fat, <laughs> to store that glucose as fat, right? It grows the fat. It is anabolic. It is tissue growing, but primarily in the form of fat. We grow these fat cells. They get big. They get larger. We produce new fat cells. And this is all from that signal from insulin. It's anabolic or fat storage, you know, function primarily from the elevated insulin. So it has actually been said that with respect to metabolism, you know, that sort of energy, that that process that we want to always speed up, right? We'd love to have that fast, you know, just pumped up metabolism. Well, we can't have that working well and efficiently and flexible with high levels of insulin because our metabolism is in a resting state when the insulin is up. It is not in the, you know, burn mode, burn the fuel, burn the fat mode. If insulin is elevated, it's in the fat storage mode, <laughs> And it has actually been called, I read a recent study just this week that called it the most important hormonal mediator in all human metabolism. That most important signaling process, that most important hormone is insulin, right? And insulin, when elevated, we call this hyper, you know, high, hyperinsulinemia, which leads to not only this fat building or anabolic phase that we talked about, but it leads to all this other stuff that many of us, including me, have experienced, right? If our insulin is up, we're storing the glucose as fat. And guess what? We have cravings, especially carbohydrate cravings. We have this hyperphagia, this increased appetite, or we always feel like we need to eat every couple hours. We also have, as I mentioned, decreased or less fat burning and decreased energy. So if our insulin is up, we're going to feel tired. 
We're going to crave, you know, especially sweet foods, carbohydrate-rich foods. We're going to crave them every couple of hours. We're, we're not going to be full of energy. We're going to feel tired. We're going to have maybe a, a low mood or a depressed mood. And all this is related directly to elevated insulin levels. But the cool thing is, is if we get, get our insulin levels down, just the opposite can happen. The cravings go down, right? The fat burning starts. We get pumped up with energy because fat is way more energetically dense than glucose. We can get way more energy out of fat than we can out of glucose, right? It's not just the simple, you know, four to nine ratio, right? Four uh, calories per gram of glucose versus nine per fat. But also when you go into the process of the mitochondria that actually produces, remember these mitochondria, they're those little power plants inside all of our cells, almost all of our cells, right? Not red blood cells, but almost every other cell has these little energy powerhouses or power plants, however you want to refer to them, that, that basically make energy in the form of what's called ATP in our bodies, right? It makes, makes the ADP, which is the last active form, into the ATP through that whole phosphorylation process in the electron transport chain that occurs in the mitochondria, which is through oxidative phosphorylation. You don't have to remember any of that, but just remember that the mitochondria are so important for our energy production, and they love fat. They love that fuel. It burns clean. It burns well. It is energy dense. It gives way more ATP molecules you know, probably almost 20 times more in ATP molecules than burning glucose. So not only can we lose that stubborn body fat that we're wanting to lose, but we can be way more energized if we maximize and optimize this process of burning fat, being fat burners, if you will, which occurs when our insulin is low. So what's really interesting here is that insulin talks to all these other hormones, right? So like I said at the outset, insulin is kind of the fat storage, you know, hormone. It's uh, anabolic. It tells our fat cells to take up that glucose. We're going to turn it into fat, you know, store the energy. We're not going to be breaking it down if our insulin is up. We're just going to be storing it. And then in the fat cells themselves, these are called adipose tissue or adipocytes, it's just a fancy word for a fat cell. What's super interesting about them is they have a part in this whole hormonal, you know, process, this chemical messaging, you know, process. You think of like all of us, right? We use like text messaging to send messages quickly to our friends, family, whomever. And in our bodies, we send signals all the time uh, through this whole hormonal system. And these fat cells We've come to realize in the last 20 years, especially that they are part of this signaling pathway. They, they are part of this text messaging system, if you will, within our bodies. And if you want to learn all about how this goes down, it's actually super interesting. Dr. Benjamin Bickman wrote a book on this, on insulin resistance, and it's called Why We Get Sick. And he talks all about the fat cells. He's like one of the world experts on fat cells. And what's interesting is these fat cells as mentioned, are really an endocrine or hormonal organ, if you will, because they release these chemical messengers that communicate with the rest of our body, sending these messages. 
in the form of what's called adipokines. So from the adipocyte or the fat cell comes the adipokine, which is kind of like the cytokine. You guys have probably heard of cytokines. I think recently in the news, these have been um, kind of front and center because you guys have probably heard about what's called the cytokine storm that happens in bad uh, COVID uh, infections because this is a huge inflammatory process. And when you have the so-called cytokine storm, that's why some people get really, really sick. And not surprisingly, people who have elevated levels of cytokines already, like folks with a lot of fat cells, right? Obese folks, folks with diabetes, folks with you know, chronic health conditions such as obesity. Remember what I said um, at the outset, you know, nine out of 10 people in the world really have some form of insulin resistance, which is also a pro-inflammatory state. And about two-thirds of the U.S. is overweight, right? And almost 50% being obese. Like it's, it's nutty how big of a problem it is. And this is an inflammation problem because one of the reasons is these fat cells produce these cytokine molecules. We call them adipokines because they come from the fat cells. So they're, they're one of these chemical signaling processes and they are pumping these out when they are in the storage mode, when they are getting filled with glucose, which is getting converted into fat. And when they are getting the bad fats incorporating incorporated into their cells, right? All these uh, inflammatory fats that we've heard of that are the seed oils, essentially the vegetable oils, right? That come from highly processed, um, industrialized processes, you know, such as, as those that are gone through to get things like canola oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil, rapeseed oil, all of these things that come from just these crazy industrialized processes in the form of the seed oils, these are super inflammatory. They are highly prone to being oxidized or broken down and sending off what are called free radicals. And this is part of what stimulates this whole inflammatory cascade. So we have the fat cell itself, which secretes these hormonal mediators called the adipokines, right? Also, we have other inflammatory um, markers being released by these fat cells if they have the bad kind of fat in them, the polyunsaturated fatty acids that come from a diet of processed food or diet of the wrong kind of oils that, you know, just a few years ago, most of us didn't know that, right? We thought canola oil was good. We thought Vegetable oil was good because it came from a plant, right? It's plant-based. It must be good for us, but that's not true. You know, the, the oils that come from plants that are good for us are those that are not highly processed, those that are just pressed, like olive oil, right? Avocado oil, coconut oil. These are not highly processed. These are the oils that are better for us, including the oils and fats that come from natural means, right? Those that come from the food we eat that is not processed. Saturated fats coming from the food that we eat are fine, right? Natural butter, ghee, you know? These things are, are actually natural and our body knows how to use them and they're not inflammatory. <laughs> they're not inflammatory. You know, years ago we thought that heart disease, right? The common 
number one cause of death in the world. We thought it was just a plumbing problem. We thought it was just the cholesterol that we had eaten that caused it. And guess what? We were wrong, dead wrong, extremely wrong. It's actually not so much a plumbing problem as it is an inflammation problem, right? Now we have this cool test out there. I've talked about it before called the highly sensitive CRP or the C-reactive protein, which is an early detector of heart disease because it is a measure of inflammation, a measure of inflammation in the body. And heart disease has at its core, the central cause is not eating eggs. It's not eating cholesterol. It's inflammation, inflammation from processed foods, from seed oils. You know, all these things cause a hefty amount of inflammation, including the inflammatory markers that are released from the fat cells themselves, right? The adipokines. What's also interesting about the fat cells, and I kind of alluded to this before, is say, for example, in a man, in a dude, right, that gets a little overweight, well, guess what he has? Not only does he have usually bigger fat cells, right, because they get hyperplastic, and hyper, or excuse me, hypertrophic is when they get bigger and they grow larger, but they also tend to get more of them, hyperplastic fat cells. And that's, that's the big problem too because they just keep making more and more fat cells. And what happens because the fat is an endocrine organ, it secretes hormones, right? And what's interesting about this is that um, within the fat cells themselves, they have these aromatase right, enzymes that can convert the hormone, testosterone, into estrogen. So like I mentioned at the outset, have you ever seen a dude that's kind of getting overweight and he gets the, my kids call them the moobs, <laughs> the man, the man boobs, they call them the moobs. And they get this because those fat cells actually are taking testosterone and converting it to estrogen. And so if you checked an estrogen level on these overweight dudes, their estrogen levels would be elevated. And conversely, their testosterone levels would be down, right? What dude out there hasn't thought about, especially my age, right? I'm getting into me, you know, I'm just about 50 now. And, and I even had my testosterone check because I wanted to know, right? There's, it seems like we have this high incidence of low T out there, right? Low testosterone, which, you know, none of us want to have, right? Because then we don't feel as manly. We don't have that energy We're, you know, maybe our metabolism's not working as well. And, and what commonly is at the root of this is not a primary testosterone problem, but it's this feedback that's occurring because in the fat cells, they have this aromatase enzyme which takes testosterone and actually makes it into estrogen. So the testosterone level is going down, the estrogen level is going up, but it's not a primary testosterone problem. It's actually an insulin problem, right? Because the insulin being elevated told the cells to take up that glucose, make it into fat, build more fat, get the fat cells bigger, make more of them. So both hypertrophic fat and hyperplastic, getting more cells, that causes basically a decrease in the testosterone and an increase in the estrogen. And so the dudes become less manly as they become more chubby, but this has at the heart, at the root, insulin. Insulin, which as I mentioned, goes up because of eating too many of the carbs, especially of the processed carbs, right? All those things that come with a label, 
that have the white flours and the highly refined sugars and high fructose corn syrup in the form of, you know, sugary drinks or in the form of, you know, all of these processed bars and snacks that we like to eat every two to three hours, they get insulin up. And if we're snacking, our insulin is basically up all the time. And if it's up all the time, it keeps telling our cells to be in this storage mode, to be in this fat building mode, to be in this inflammatory mode. And so we have sexual dysfunction. We have low T in dudes. We have PCOS in ladies. We have a similar problem in ladies that works a little differently. Their estrogen can be converted into testosterone. That's why with PCOS, you get sometimes, you know, a little bit of extra hair that they may not have had before. Like a lady can get, you know, a mustache or a little hair on her face, you know, or hair in other places that they didn't typically get because they have an issue with hormones that is similar and opposite to the dudes in that they are, you know, making androgens in their fat cells because of the elevated insulin. So it's crazy. And this this all happens not from a primary, you know, sex hormone problem, if you will, but it happens because of elevated insulin. The insulin is too high and it acting as a master hormone is just jacking things up. And so to cure this, the answer is not give more estrogen or in a dude, give more testosterone. The answer many, many times is control the inflammation and get rid of of insulin resistance. What's so interesting is that, I don't know if anybody's experienced this, but as a dude, uh, I've, you know, and, and being a physician, of course, and seen many people that have technically on the blood work, a low testosterone level, they start to get testosterone injections and they'll see some improvements usually for a couple of months, but then they plateau and then they don't seem to get much improvement from ongoing injections. And the problem is, is they have not gone to the root of the problem, which oftentimes is this whole hormonal imbalance that starts with insulin, insulin resistance. And so uh, just briefly, I know we've talked about it a lot before, but what the heck is insulin resistance anyway? Well, we, we know that it's basically an elevation, pretty much a chronic elevation of insulin to the fact that it's not working as well as normal, so the body keeps making more and more of it. You keep having elevated levels going up and up and up and up to try to do the same role as a lower level would do if it was working properly, so you get some resistance in effect. In other words, you have to increase the stimulus to have the same effect, and so that's why they call it insulin resistance. And what's interesting is that they've even linked elevated insulin levels in and of itself to be causal to obesity. You know, it's like the whole chicken or the egg, right? If you take an obese person, 99% of the time, they're going to have elevated insulin. And then you ask, well, what happened first? You know, did obesity cause the elevated insulin or did elevated insulin cause obesity? And, and I think now the science is leaning towards the elevated insulin has been causal to diabetes. Although you could, you know, there's science to support both ways, but it seems that the more recent stuff is favoring this high insulin or this insulin resistance as being causal to obesity. So this goes back to that simple issue, insulin resistance, insulin resistance. So if we can figure out how to get our insulin levels down, we could potentially help 
so many other hormonal problems, including low thyroid. How many people out there have you guys talked to or know of, or maybe you're one of them that have low, low thyroid? I think, you know, the common statistic quoted is about one in five guys has hypothyroid, um, or excuse me, at least one in 10 guys has hypothyroid, whereas one in five or almost one in four of ladies have experienced hypothyroid. It's super common. I bet one of you guys out there know somebody who's had hypothyroid, right? And this has also been shown to be directly related to elevated insulin, among other things, right? It's, it's often an inflammatory problem too, and there's lots of things that can cause inflammation. I mean, our food, the way I love to to state it, is that our food is medicine. Everything we put into our bodies is medicine. And it can literally be life-saving and miraculous medicine if we're eating the right foods and in the right amounts. Or it could be, you know, toxic. I mean, what we eat can literally be toxic. And we literally are what we eat. Like that old adage you heard of as a kid, you are what you eat. Well, it's actually true. You know, I mean, your body is made up of the things that you eat. So you have to sort of ask yourself the question, you know, when you reach for one of those processed food items and go, shoot, do I want to be made up of this? Whatever it is, you fill in the blank, you know, this Twinkie or this sugary drink, you know, this soda or whatever, you know, I mean, do you want your body to be made up of that? Because, or the seed oils, right? Because they literally are incorporated into our cell membranes. We literally are what we eat. So hopefully we'll make good choices with our diet, which primarily is in real, whole, natural foods, right? This is what's going to help. Like, let's go back to the thyroid. Thyroid's super interesting. We know that for the thyroid to function properly, we need to have certain nutrients in our diet, things like zinc and iodine and selenium, because when we don't get these, our, our, our thyroid can be hypoactive, or we can get a low thyroid, or hypothyroidism. <clears throat> of course, the other things play into this as well. There's some genetics, but most of it is what we call epigenetic. In other words, most of these conditions are not necessarily inherited in our genes, but it's in the epigenetics or what we have done, you know, with our lifestyle and behaviors to affect the gene expression. Epigenetics is so fascinating because, you know, when I was in medical school, we always talked about inheritance, you know, the Mendelian genetics, if you will. Like we basically blamed our parents or grandparents or predecessors for our problems because, right, they they came in the genes, right? It's in the genes and we can't do anything about it. Well, bull crap. <laughs> Most of the illnesses out there have actually a very low incidence of a genetic inheritance with respect to their uh, expression. Let's just take, sorry to digress, but I just think this is a fascinating topic. Let's just take cancer, for example. Did you know that 90 to 95% of all cancer is not actually from a gene problem, from a gene inheritance problem. Like only 5 to 10% of all cancers are literally caused by the genes. You know, we hear this super famous BRCA, you know, the breast cancer gene that everybody is super 
alerted about, right? Because it's been talked about a lot in the media. We've had people remove their breasts just because they carry this gene and things like that. Well, that is the smallest part of most breast cancer. Actually, 90% of breast cancer is not from the genes, if you will. It's from all the other things, right? It's from the food is medicine stuff. You know, if we're filling ourselves with toxins, then we're going to have a higher chance of inflammation. And inflammation is at the root of all chronic disease, not only things like heart disease and diabetes and obesity, but cancer as well. Inflammation is at the root of it. Anyway, I digress. We were talking about thyroid and how it's important to have proper you know, uh, nutrients like zinc and selenium and iodine. And, and also we need to avoid you know, pesticides and eating non-organic things that might, may be full of pesticides because there's a lot of environmental toxins that we're exposed to, right? I mean, everything from, you know, the lining of cans that can cause some estrogen um, component uh, hormonal effect in our bodies, right? From just the lining of the cans, if we're eating a lot of canned foods and stuff, we need to make sure it's BPA-free and all this kind of stuff. Or drinking out of plastic bottles, you know, we want to make sure they're BPA-free and all this kind of thing because there is a hormonal issue, an estrogen-like effect from a lot of these plastics, and that can jack up our hormones once again and also be pro-inflammatory. But some of the things that can help our thyroid, right, is if we have appropriate levels of zinc in our diet, you can get these from uh, like pumpkin seeds, for example, some oysters and seafood have them. Um, also selenium is important as well, iodide, and you can get these and also seafood. I love, love, love seafood, not just because they have these super cool beneficial effects, but I just, I don't know, maybe it's just living most of my life near the ocean. I just love seafood, you know, and, and so we can get that from a lot of our uh, seafoods out there. If not, we can supplement, but these things will optimize our thyroid function. And so uh, I, I just think treating our foods as medicine and paying extra attention, you know, to what we're putting into our bodies is so, so important because we literally can treat illness as well as prevent it just starting with diet, starting with what we put in our mouth because we are what we eat. And going back to this topic, you know, we were talking about how insulin levels get increased with eating carbohydrates. Now, now carbohydrates are not the devil. Carbohydrates are not evil. They're not bad. They're not Satan, you know, like the church lady in Saturday Night Live. Like, they're not inherently bad because they can do good things for us, right? Like, I love, love, love a lot of fruits and vegetables, which have tons of carbohydrates in them, but they are natural carbohydrates. They don't come in a package with a label that also has seed oils or also has highly processed, you know, grains or sugars or what have you that will spike our glucose and hence our insulin to a high degree and keep it up. If you eat fruits and vegetables, or sometimes I like to say vegetables and fruits because they have so many good things in them, not only micronutrients, but lots of fiber. That fiber in the fruits and vegetables, what it will do is it will delay the spike in glucose and also the spike in insulin, so you'll have less of a jump in your blood sugar and less of a jump in your insulin. And so you can you know, kind of avoid getting way out of whack with your insulin if you stick to whatever carbs you do ingest, try to stick to whole, real, natural sources like vegetables 
and like fruit. If you want to get more on that, I did a whole podcast way back when on on the carbohydrates and insulin resistance, and we talked about things like glycemic index and glycemic load, and and also when my book comes out, it'll all be in the book as well, because I just think it's so important, and a lot of us just don't realize that we can actually survive just fine on a diet with no added carbohydrates, like legit, no carbohydrates. And that's not what I'm, you know, promoting here. I, I actually eat plenty of carbohydrates, but I don't eat 60 to 70% of my macronutrients and carbohydrates like, like most of us do. And when we think about this whole process, like I mentioned, you are what you eat, like legit in our entire body, like we are maybe like 5% or less carbohydrates. Like we're, there's very little carbohydrate you know, in our body, we actually, like I said, the insulin makes most of that go into fat, which is most of us want to want to get out of our bodies is all that extra fat, right? And so we talk about essential vitamins and minerals and essential nutrients. Well, I would not consider carbohydrates so much as an essential nutrient because we can live without it, but it does come with a lot of other cool you know, uh, beneficial properties, nutrients, micronutrients, antioxidants, especially if we're getting it in whole, real, natural food, like in the form of vegetables and fruit. But on the other hand, you know, things like fat, we need to have fat, right? Our brain, did you know our brain is over 60% fat? Like we are literally made up of cholesterol and fat with respect to our brain. Like most of it is fat. Like we need that stuff. We need to eat eggs or we need to eat healthy fats because that's what will, will will grow our brain and help our brain, if you will. I mean, that's what we need. We need to have healthy fats in our diet. Anyway, <laughs> I digress again. But, but what I wanted to really share with you in this podcast is that the primary hormonal problem literally in the world is insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia. And this affects so many things. And not only, like I mentioned, the thyroid and the sex hormones and, and so many other things. It affects cortisol. Like literally, um, I, I've mentioned this before, but in the morning, all of us have a natural elevation in our cortisol. And so cortisol is supposed to come up in the morning because, you know, for millennia, right, we would wake up with an empty stomach and there would be nowhere for us to go to get food, right? There was no refrigerator. There, was, there were no cupboards. You know, there was nothing sitting around that we could just roll out of bed and eat. And so our cortisol would go up to be able to help burn our fat to give us the energy that we needed and the mental alertness and the mental clarity to be sharp and to be ready to go on the hunt. And if we wake up and we consume carbohydrates, for example, it actually works exactly opposite to this natural spike in cortisol in the morning. And so what happens is it has to spike even higher to account for the big insulin release that's happening when we eat carbohydrates. So you have this sort of morning phenomenon, or it's actually called the DAWN, D-A-W-N, the DAWN phenomenon that happens with an elevation in our cortisol in the morning. But this can actually especially if we eat carbs in the morning, can really be a big factor in leading to insulin resistance. So although I do eat carbohydrates, and I actually like a lot of them, especially in the natural vegetables and the natural fruits, I rarely eat carbohydrates in the morning. 
I start my day off with fat, with cholesterol, with eggs. Like I usually eat three to four eggs and I eat avocados and some healthy fats in the morning and I save my carbs for later in the day because if you are going to eat carbs, the best time to do it is later in the day, especially towards the evening. So if you want to carb load, you know, have your pasta, which I don't recommend every day, but if you want to have pasta once in a while, the best time to eat it is at night because then you have basically, or not, not at night, like late at night, but just for your evening meal. And then of course you want to wait three or four hours before you lay down, you know, you don't want to eat before bed and then you want to have at least a, I always recommend at least a 12 hour window, you know, before your next meal. But basically the best time to eat carbs is in the evening because then you'll have the least chance of having the big giant spikes in insulin because you'll be basically refueling all your muscle and liver glycogen, right, that you've burned, that you've used up throughout the course of the day. Primarily the carbs that you eat will go into refueling those storage areas. And then you'll have, you know, 12 or more hours for things to kind of rejuvenate. And it's it's good to have that process going on at night. Uh, it's sort of the, I like to say the housekeeping, <laughs> the housekeeping time of the body, right, is at night. So carbs are not the devil. Carbs are not evil. But it's choosing the right kind of carbs. And also the timing, the timing of the carbs is so important. So I hope that's helpful for you guys. It, I, I've found it in my own life and in many, many others and patients and others that I've known throughout the years to benefit tremendously from getting their insulin resistance in check and fixing that through both low carb and timing of carbs, you know, towards the evening, shifting that as well as, you know, doing some intermittent fasting. That's hugely helpful and it actually does the opposite of what I talked about with the fat cells releasing those inflammatory molecules called the adipokines or those inflammatory cytokines. If you do some intermittent fasting, the fat cells will actually release helpful hormones or anti-inflammatory hormones, which will be beneficial and good for your health. So there's definitely benefits to intermittent fasting, both as it decreases inflammation, as well as it kind of revs up the brain, you get smarter, you remember better through the release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Um, there's all the autophagy that goes on through intermittent fasting. There's lots of cool stuff. You know, check out my podcast on intermittent fasting. We'll also have a whole chapter in the book, but I, I do recommend that as part of a healthy, you know, diet and lifestyle, and I find it to be super super awesome and helpful for me. And I just love it. I do it almost every day, not every single day. It's good to break it up and mix it up, but I do it a lot of days and I love it. So anyway, I hope this is of value to you guys. I hope you've learned something and please feel free to share. Wow. Sorry about that. A little bit technical issue there, but I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate your feedback. Just so appreciate you, and I just, I just so grateful to have this opportunity to be a part of your day, to share a little bit of a healthy message that something you can do something about, something you can take this information literally, and you can change this most common health problem in the world and most common hormonal problem or insulin resistance because it does affect so many other hormones and this can literally be changed in a matter of days and weeks this is something that doesn't take years this is something you can do fairly quickly 
through simple diet and lifestyle modifications like we've talked about. Try to decrease the carbs, try to eliminate the processed foods, try to eliminate those seed oils, and just fill your plate with healthy, whole, real, normal food that you can pronounce, right? Stuff that doesn't come with a label and a barcode, stuff that you can trace the source. You know, if you like to eat meats, make sure it's grass-fed, grass-finished. You know, it's not cafe raised you know, it's not stuck in a feedlot that you actually can get high-quality meats if you like meats, high-quality eggs, high-quality vegetables, high-quality fruits that are organic and raised humanely. I love you guys. Aloha.